What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny. And John and I are here, underslept, overcaffeinated, and ready to talk about the next chapter of The Machine in the Garden. What's up, John? What's up? So, well, we've got a lot to get to. (laughs) Yeah, here we are again. And we've got a lot to get to today. I think this is going to be a fun one. As you and I were texting last night, this is some of the best writing on Thomas Jefferson we've seen to date. And that is very exciting. We kind of have to earn that. Leo Marx puts us through our paces before we get there. So before we get into that, just tell me a little bit about what you thought about this section compared to the the first part we read. You know, it's more emphatic in the fact that I think that it's pretty much literary theory, as we were saying before the episode a little bit. Or like the first section, it felt more like a mixture of literature and history in terms of like what its own aims were, as as you could just sort of get from the text. But in reading this, I'm like, whenever I'm reading him talk about literature, like the breadth of his knowledge and erudition, it's like, you know, extremely appreciable. Yeah. And I felt that it it shined when it, when it was in those moments and overall I'm like, okay, like I kind of get more like what this book is now, like, Mm -hmm. and kind of what the myth and symbol school, at least as Leo Marx does it is was all about, despite us having read more things about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I felt the same way. I was like, okay, I get what's happening here. This is like, you know, I think you could combine this with other cultural historians work Mm -hmm. and have a really rich experience of what he's talking about. I feel like it's almost as if you need both arms in order to put the whole thing together. In my opinion, that's how it feels, right? It's sort of like, I see what he's doing. He's laying out this sort of meta structure of, America's myths and symbols around the machine in the garden. And then what I would want is almost like, I would almost want one of his students or something to write this book. It's sort of like a Jackson Lears-esque treatment of American culture in this light. What's okay. up, dog? Yeah. Um, Last okay. thing you say it was meta structure. I changed like a VPN thing to get rid of 
I did not know that would just like destroy the Zoom call, but hopefully <laughs> your answer. Yeah. So as I was saying, like, this is sort of like a cultural meta structure, but what I would want is I would want both this treatment of myths and symbols in America to almost have like a supplemental book or something written by one of Leo Marx's students that is almost like a Jackson Lear style treatment of culture in light of this stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like that would be a more complete picture of what's going on here. But that's not to say that the ideas he's explaining here aren't consequential mm-hmm. or something like that. I think that if we're looking for a certain type of, let's say, empirical rigor, that's just not going to be what he's up to. So we'll probably get into a few more quibbles because we don't want to just ratify everything this guy's doing, but we're going to move ahead here with how this is structured. So this thing moves in, I think, three major parts. And the first act of this chapter, I call the idea of Virginia. And it really draws on this guy, Beverly's sort of history of the Virginia colonies. He's a Brit in, is it this 17th century or early 18th, John? I want to say it's the early 18th. I think so. It could be straddling. Yeah, or he's straddling, something like, so something around then. And he, he is basically, he's been to Virginia and he's in back in England and he's reading some history of Virginia and he thinks it's so bad. He just decides to (laughs) write his own. And what he writes ends up having, Leo Marx argues, an appreciable influence on the picture of America and people's minds afterwards. And again, this is drawing on, or it's hard to remember. So if people want to check out Paul Hazard's The Crisis of the European Mind, which overlaps a little bit with this book, that book takes a look at Europe more generally and its impact on European art and letters as the new world opened up to it. The travel logs were hugely popular. Like it, it can't be almost overstated how hungry people were for these things. In the same way that frontier stories or blood and thunders, as they were called, were really important cultural, like quote unquote low cultural documents in 19th century America while the frontier mm-hmm. still existed. That's what these travelogues were to the Europeans. And it really challenged a lot of what Europeans thought about themselves and about the world because suddenly there was all of this new information coming in. Sort of think about it as the first impact of globalism. So that's all to say that like there is a good bet that Beverly does have this outsized impact that those of us walking around today might not recognize. And Beverly sort of comes up with the Eden of Virginia. I mean, it's sort of like, they almost read like tall tales, don't you think? Yeah, it's definitely, especially the, because he spends a lot of time on how Beverly saw uh, the Native Americans, Indians in his vocabulary. And, you know, it's sort of positive in a way that I don't really have that much of a, a background in like the literature of this time to know how people thought of like 
Native Americans at that time. Obviously, there's the noble savage, but I feel like that, in my mind, that tends to exist more as a thing for people who don't have direct contact with anyone actually living in America. Mm. I could be wrong. But nonetheless, it was interesting that he seems to even break with his fellows on how he views them. And there's this sort of land of like, where is this, you know, the Indian damsels are full of spirit and from thence are always inspired with mirth and good humor. They are extremely given to laugh, which they do with a grace not to be resisted. The excess of life and fire, which they never fail to have, makes them frolicsome, but without any real imputation to their innocence. It's sort of like we're in, we're in Lothlorien or Rivendell. (laughs) (laughs) And the like elven maidens are like dancing. (laughs) No, for sure. I mean, it does have that, that character to it. It does seem, I mean, it's clear to me that in the previous chapter, we get this sort of post Shakespearean spectrum Mm -hmm. through which to view America and how the settlers encounter it. And Beverly seems to signal a shift in perspective that is far more on the side of the garden rather than the garden in the wild and then over civilization. And I mean, we're going to shift around this triptych a lot. And so I think what we're seeing is almost like shunting the Overton window over for how to talk about what, what America is. And what's fascinating to me about this is that it's going to have the myths of abundance, the sort of like, you know, the canoe so full with salmon that just leap into the boat that you don't even have to fish, you know, and stuff like that. Uh You're going to have the quote unquote savage for their time life, though it is less dehumanizing than I would say some of Beverly's forebears or peers saw it as. And you have this idea of Virginia as both like, the garden of the world, but also something that needs lowercase g gardens. And that's a really important distinction for Leo Marx. Yeah, it's the thing that keeps coming up again and again is sort of, even as we move away from even discussing primitivism at all, Mm -hmm. as something that like we need to pay attention to for the purposes of this work. It is kind of reemphasized everywhere that when we talk about gardens, we are talking about the intervention of man on a wilderness. And that later in the chapter, he even says, like, Americans don't really have any tradition of celebrating wilderness as such in our literature. It's always a celebration of a wilderness for what it can be made into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the cult of improvement almost. And- yeah. I will say, so I've been doing some reading on sort of like cultural studies around the first telegraph power lines. And I, some of that actually really made Leo Marx feel like he was hitting pay dirt. You know that famous Manifest Destiny painting where it's the angel like in the oh, yeah, yeah. Is it? Mm-hmm. I never noticed this before, but her hair is, is slowly being paid out through her hand into telegraph wire oh damn yeah <laughs> that's crazy yeah which was like I've mind blowing looked at it that closely no neither have i and i was like oh like i get it now you know i sort of see how this is all fitting together so anyway that's just a little maybe that's a little bit of a dub for leo marx 
in terms of like how improvement works. I really only think wildness, and I wonder if he'll take it here later in the book. Wildness for his own sake is something that happens after the closure of the frontier and industrialization begins. You know, that it has this sort of like nostalgic quality to it, which isn't, I'm not knocking, I'm just characterizing. Anyway, um, I still think that, that is a very like provocative claim to say that for a while or maybe ever, it was only ever what we could do with the land. Because Beverly, in a very British way, is not stoked on the impact that this abundance has had on his fellow Englishmen. Yeah, it's a very like, it's complicated. And clearly in Beverly, the environment of America is so much better for a human being than Europe. Like it is a naturally health giving, and that is in a moral sense as much as it is in a physical sense environment. But then the the repose that's possible with this much plenty, like then leads to a degradation, which leads to an idea that comes up a lot of a kind of middle way of we're not yeah. veering too much into any direction, which would lead to different kinds of degradation, I think, for the human being, which becomes kind of like the central concern of a lot of the people we look at in this chapter is like the effect of the environment on a person and mm -hmm. how you how you believe about that. Which, you know, it it's interesting that it's a current that develops, like as we said, Beverly's kind of the end of the 17th, early 18th century. And it remains through Jefferson at the end of the chapter, like this kind of thinking about it in a very unresolved way. It's more of a dialectic than anything. Um, yeah, and he says that, or at least that's something he talks about when he gets to Jefferson, that this ends up being a dialectic about how to, which for those of the listeners that haven't like spent frustrating time with Hegel or puzzling through Socrates as rendered by Plato, is an overturning of ideas, right? So one idea sort of leads to its own defeat, the victory of another until that one expires. You know, it's not just this perennialism, but it's something like that. You know, you're sort of working through the problems uh, as you lever up, I guess. But, yeah. and it's easy to like, you know, Europeans, they live in London or whatever, their life sucks. They're like a miserable, nasty people. <laughs> uh, they're not fun to be around. But if they come to America, they become better because the land is just so bright and gay and wonderful. And but then they've spent so long here that now they don't do anything and they're lazy and they kind of suck again, but it's in a different way. Like that's sort of one that would be the way in which like Beverly is kind of dialectical in that he does not necessarily provide any kind of closure to that conflict. It's just simply ongoing. Yeah, and he seems he seems like frustrated by it, right? He can't reconcile it within itself because what he wants is a greater reconciliation between, as you know, we talked about this last time, as a reconciliation between art, meaning human artifice, not just human cultural products or whatever, and nature, a la Virgil, Marx will argue. So I wanted to read this little couple sentences from Marx because I feel like it sort of puts a nice cap on this moment and then maybe we can pivot to questions of the changes in the pastoral mode 
So Marx writes, having begun with nature's garden as his controlling metaphor, Beverly discovers mid-career that he cannot accept what it implies. He does not like what has happened to the British in Virginia. He denounces them for their soft, slack ways. What he wanted, after all, was to reconcile his admiration for the primitive life with what he knew of the needs of a truly civilized community. So one thing that I want to point out is that urbanization and early industrialization made life worse for a while. You see that over and over again in development. It's like one of those things that development theory or whatever has empirically puzzled out is that at first, those things are bad. (laughs) They lead to a miserable life, especially for the poor and the working classes. The air sucks. The living conditions are squalid. It's often overcrowded. It is very chaotic. And it takes a while for that to improve, maybe a generation, maybe more. So when we're talking about like, what does over-civilization look like in Europe? You have to realize that England had burned through a lot of its wood. Anybody who knows anything about the life of chimney sweeps at this time, like these are young boys who are getting like testicular cancer from sweeping out coal chimneys and stuff like that because the soot collects around their crotches where they sweat. These are like six-year-old kids, you know what I mean? So just keep that in mind. Like these people aren't just being Luddites when they're criticizing this. They're trying to look for, as Leo Marx points out, a greater reconciliation between the land and human art. Definitely. And there's also, it's the Marx doesn't get into really as much or even at all directly, but this is kind of the birth of cosmopolitan culture. And Mm. you really didn't before have a sort of the beginning of like a culture that was common to say Vienna, London, and Paris and so on. But you get that more and more as we go into the 18th century, there become more, you know, like you have the development of music at this time and art and people are Mm -hmm. traveling more. And that's leading to a kind of cosmopolitan culture that people will both celebrate, but also be kind of afraid of. And very soon after you will get Herder and some of the German figures, but also people in in like the British Isles, who start to look to a folk culture that Mm. is national and indigenous as something more sincere and like real. Less artificial. Less yeah. artificial and more like, you know, of the soil. Yeah, more They will try and like then collect, even though they're of the intellectual class. So they're like coming down from the ivory tower, trying to collect folk songs and things like that. And then say like, this is just as real as like Mozart or even more so. Mm. So the, that starts to happen in this hundred year period that we're treating right now. It won't be as directly meaningful to the American experience, but it's part of the European background, which is informing all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a hugely important thing to bring up. And it also shows you how strange America is as almost a phenomenological experience, which I feel like is something that these people are encountering and it's what Leo Marx wants to look at. 
but there was also a big debate. And so I think we can kind of move to the, as you said, heavy dose of literary history, right. Anglosphere literary history at this point in changes in the pastoral mode. Mm-hmm. So which one of the things into with, with Oliver Goldsmith, which I thought was cool because he's not as well read anymore, but at the time, like, well, just like Goethe was like telling people like read Goldsmith. He was like, he was just running around like read Goldsmith, mm-hmm. read Shakespeare. Like it was a time in which English letters were inspirational to like a broader European world. Like people yes. were like being told to learn English so that they could read Shakespeare, Goldsmith at all. And, and, and James was, and James Fenimore Cooper. Yeah, James <laughs> Fenimore Cooper, <laughs> the goat. <laughs> <laughs> the dog. So, yeah. okay. So t- tell me a little bit more about Goldsmith because I was actually unfamiliar with him. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on why he's important and why you think Leo Marx starts with him? He, well, his most famous work is a book called The Vicar of Wakefield. And that's something that people were reading all over Europe. As far as I'm aware, everything that I've heard about it, like sort of lends itself to that. But he, so what, how Marx uses him as his most famous poem is the deserted village which is how would you put it's like basically talking about in my mind the effects of industrialization and like the development of this artificial culture marking kind of like the end of the muse in europe or at least Mm. england so he talks about where's the line he quoted here Goldsmith foresees the migration of the rural muse. Even now, methinks, as pondering here I stand, I see the rural virtues leave the land, down where yon anchoring vessel spreads the sail. The vessel, needless to say, is bound for America. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, attaching to Goldsmith the idea of there being, because as we talked about before, there are like a lot of ideas associated with rural life, and one of them being this form of thinking about life where it is just inherently superior to urban life. Um, which, as Marx says, a belief in the superiority of rural life was a sociological corollary for Goldsmith's generation to the widely accepted ethical doctrine that the middle state was the best of all possible human conditions, as we were talking about, like between Mm -hmm. wilderness and civilization. According to this venerable idea, man is the creature who occupies the middle link in the great chain of being, a point of transition between the lower and higher animal and intellectual forms of being, which was really like one of the most interesting sections of this chapter. But the very next thing he says, which is perhaps just like a very 20th century point of view, but he goes on to say a grand compelling metaphor, comma. And then I was just, God, this is so like Joseph Campbell. (laughs) Just like, you know what I mean? You're like, yeah, you take this whole metaphysical system that's like trying to make really direct claims about the nature of reality. And you're like, it's a metaphor. Right. Yeah. A logical condition. Yeah. It's the, it's the uh, butterfly meme. Is this a metaphor? And it's like metaphysics. <laughs> Just to like belabor this point too much, but I think it's something that maybe this is the best way of saying like most of my points of contention with Marx 
will be probably a materialist tendency to reduce everything like this to something like a metaphor, like a psychologization of metaphysical claims uh, whenever yeah. they come up is perhaps like my biggest break with him, which doesn't really hurt the, the, the impact of the book at all. But like, you know, the idea that man sits between heaven and earth or animal and angel or whatever is found like all over the world in pretty much every tradition mm -hmm. from like Islam to like Imperial China, at least as far back as the Han dynasty, if not farther, like into, you know, almost pre-written times. So just like, there's these moments where you're like, well, that's a compelling metaphor. And like, I feel like if something is this rooted in the human experience and this transcultural, it is probably better to pass over in silence than to reduce it to like, it tells us something about life. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think to me, part of what he's trying to stake out is what becomes an evolving English pragmatism. Right, which is definitely where it goes. Like, and I think and whatever I think English that, people believed, they no longer believe that shortly thereafter. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, Zizek things, Zizek's thing about the ideology of the toilets, right? I'm where, familiar. oh, okay. So he has this joke where, you know, if you go to France and you use one of their toilets, it's just like a straight drop down and then it just ejects your shit. And he's like, that's basically the guillotine. That's like French revolutionary radicalism right there. And then in Europe, it's like a more shallow bed. So you can like inspect your own shit to make sure that you're like healthy and okay. And he's like, that's basically like German idealism. Um, <laughs> and then he says the British toilets are basically like in between. And he was like, and that's British pragmatism. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> so that's, yeah, but... that's immediately what I thought of when I was reading the middle way section that's of this. Hilarious. I'll, I'll bring us out of the pointless hole that I've climbed into. But at any rate, he brings up that like this idea of a middle state is not new. It's stemmed at least from classical antiquity mm -hmm. in that, however, he thinks that it had the greatest diffusion and acceptance during the 18th century. And I'm like, you know, who knows? We have so little of classical antiquity that I don't think we can really say what had diffusion and acceptance. Mm -hmm. But it's neither here nor there. This is the time of the physiocrats, which he calls like the extremist wing of, mm. of that party. But there's a beginning sense of like, and it's really interesting because we're at the beginning of the industrial revolution. So you can still have something like physiocracy, which is the idea that agriculture is the fundamental basis of all wealth. Yeah. And basically increase agriculture, increase wealth when as a frame of mind. And that is, you know, like still a dominant economic position that's being taken at this time. It's a very different world. And we're going to see, I think, when we get to Jefferson, the crossing from that world into the next world, where yeah. it becomes just abundantly clear that you can no longer believe in like the ability of any nation to be an agricultural nation solely and to remain self-determined, we'll say. Yeah, and to and to and to be powerful and perhaps even have a level of sovereignty in the great world contest for power. Right. Which is something that Americans are particularly aware of because they're living in 
contested territories. Yeah, that's the you know, birth like, of America. Yeah, that's the, the, I mean, I think that that is where that sensitivity to the great contest comes from in America, in my mind. But what Marx is doing here, so he's talking about this middle path, and he's also talking about the way in which the idea of the pastoral, the mode in which we engage with it starts to change. Here's something I didn't know that he brings up that I thought was fascinating, is that there is a whole debate in Britain about what to do with the pastoral tradition, because you had all these British dudes writing pastorals with Mediterranean imagery. Yeah. And yeah, the classical, which Marx rightly points out and even cites some pretty poor poetry from Pope from his younger days in this mode is basically dead on the vine. It is obviously a non-viable way. And what starts to happen is that Lockean psychology, which has to do with the imagination and impressions, Locke is not alone in this, so it's not just him. There is, he has like a slew of peers that are also, and some of them get mentioned here, doing the same thing. But they locate sight as primary. This is almost a return to, I would say, like almost a platonic engagement with the world in terms of sight being very, very crucial for the deepest insights you can get. And that has an impact on how the imagination works. The early scientific revolution, meaning now sense data is becoming yet more important because an empirical influx of information is what the scientific method needs to operate at all. It is not sort of a theory first, almost a metaphysical post-Aristotelian world anymore that we talked about last episode. And that regrounds the pastoral in science and philosophy. And you start to see like this toggling from the figure of the shepherd to the figure of the farmer in England, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing, right? Because that is from more out in the actual wild to being in a cultivated garden, from being mobile to being fixed and static in this world. And people can reflect back on the things that John brings up about the sort of return to folkways that's happening in the ivory tower at this time. And that is where fixity in agrarian life becomes important in the face of an oncoming cosmopolitanism. Yeah, it's interesting because in one sense, the sentiments are ancient. Mm-hmm. However, they are instantiated anew in a completely different uh, social situation. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting a little detour, but I think it's probably worth some context, uh, which is hinted at, but not quite given in the work is he brings up, and it's something we're going to get to, especially with Jefferson, but a few different names. And he mentions Rousseau a little bit, but we don't really get much about Rousseau, which I thought was Mm -hmm. kind of fascinating. Yeah, me too. Because Rousseau to me is like a huge part of this story. Mm -hmm. Um, Rousseau writes in... I want to say 1750, it is the Discourse on the Arts and Sciences. That sounds right. And he he basically explores what is the effect of arts and science very broadly understood on human morality or like human life. And he comes down not very favorably. 
But one of the things that he talks at length about is the difference between the Athenian constitution and the Spartan constitution. And for him, like Athens is arts and science, you know, mm -hmm. par excellence, like who is art and science, if not Athens, they had all, you know, they had poets. Well, Athens, artisans. Athens, yeah. And they're explicit about Athens almost being more of an idea as part of their, the impact of what the Persian war had on them when they had to put their entire city on boats and move it around, thus literally deracinating it from the land. Right. So that has like this abstracting impact on Athenian culture. And he contrasts with, he says, what can we really say that we even have from Sparta? Like nothing except for the fact that men who born there just seem to breathe in virtue. <laughs> it's impossible for them to live otherwise. He's kind of a Spartan boy. Um, yeah, he is. You know, there have been arguments that Plato was the same. And he definitely brings up Socrates as sort of deflating a kind of Athenian hubris, at least in his view. And he connects that to Rome, which is something we talked a little bit about last time. But he brings up Cato the Elder and his... is a very, like, complicated figure, I would say, in the same way as Thomas Jefferson is in his opinion on Greeks and Greek culture. But we do get a nice line from Rousseau where he says, up to that time, Romans had been content to practice virtue. Everything was lost when they began to study it. Mm. And he is drawing on a pretty wide body of classical writing on this. So it brought me back. I was like, oh, Cato. Cato wrote on, on agriculture, De Agricultura. And the very first line is kind of could have been written in the time that we're talking about. He says, it is true that to obtain money by trade is sometimes more profitable were it not so hazardous. And likewise, money lending, if it were as honorable, our ancestors held this view and embodied it in their laws, which required that the thief be mulcted double and the usurer fourfold. How much less desirable a citizen they considered the usurer than the thief, one may judge from this. And when they would praise a worthy man, their praise took this form, good husbandman, good farmer. One so praised was thought to have received the greatest commendation. He goes on to say that farmers are the best soldiers and they have the most virtue and, and so on and so forth. And that trade, while not reprehensible in itself, is subject to ups and downs, which then make the person who is involved in it subject to ups and downs in their character, I would say. Mm. And that's what makes trade dangerous. Whereas the work of farming is almost like this pacific stasis of like you pull things out of the earth and you eat them and that kind of never changes droughts aside or whatever. Like the focus on the, for Cato, like being a husbandman is all about stability, reliability, and a kind of like disposition towards strength. Because for Rome and perhaps less so for Thomas Jefferson, the association with farmers always has a martial kind of turn to it where there is a rural virtue. And part of it is the fact that the men who are farming develop these virtues, which are seen perhaps in their fullness when you're like burning Carthage to the ground with these like yokel farmers. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it kind of lent power 
to the Manius Curious episode when he's being offered all this money and he's like, I don't care about that. Like, and then he thinks, you know, this is the guy who like laid waste to cities and he, that's like all that matters for him is sort of like his duty to the Republic. And I think Mm -hmm. the martial aspect over the course of time is reinterpreted as perhaps less important, but Closing this all off to say that one of the big authors for a lot of people who matter right now, like Montesquieu, huge at this moment for the founding fathers, especially is Polybius. Mm -hmm. And Polybius does something that to my mind is sort of unique, like not entirely. Aristotle was all about comparing constitutions that made up governments, but Polybius kind of wants to do it more directly empirically. Like, well, we can suppose that Aristotle had a bunch of empirical evidence in front of him. We just don't get any of that when we look at his thoughts on government, the result of that. Uh, Polybius says, I want to look at actually existing governments in my time, which is Rome and the Greeks. And like what made Rome a nascent empire to rule the known world. Mm -hmm. And when he's talking about that, he analyzes the constitution of Lycurgus and the Spartans. And he seeks sort of like, why did they fail? Because they're kind of a famous martial people. And his conclusion is that while the legislation of Lycurgus was entirely sufficient and for preserving their own freedom and guarding their own country with absolute safety, and that if the Spartans had remained committed to this kind of non-interventionist of life, in his mind, they never would have fallen but the fact that they attempted to engage an empire inevitably destroyed them because the way that their society was set up simply did not provide for the ability to do that. Their money was iron bars that were difficult to transport. They traded crops in kind. Like they were not set up for a large logistical undertaking of empire. Mm-hmm. Why I think that's interesting is because this is pretty much when Polybius is thinking about constitution, he is thinking about constitution for what? You know what I mean? Like a constitution, what is it being constituted to do? And how different forms of constituting a thing will have very different effects. Sparta attempted to engage in activities beyond the Peloponnese, and it ultimately kind of like Greece is no more, just in general. Like Greece is now Rome. Mm-hmm. You see this again in Rousseau, who's thinking about the effects of different constitutions on people. And you see it again in Thomas Jefferson, but it's also just like in all of this writing we're reading, this is kind of like what's in the water. I just sort of wanted to bring that stuff up because I think it's probably for any of our readers who want to read this book. I think those are also interesting places to go that Leo Marx doesn't necessarily highlight except in passing. But like, just yeah. just it's in the air. Like, ancient debates are kind of being made anew at this time in a way that they really hadn't been for for many hundreds of years. Well, in one way, we one reason why that might be the case is because now we have new foundings. Yes, and so there are questions about how to begin again, and this is the rift between America and Europe, which is a rift in concepts of ideas of history and civilization. You know, America being, Marx argues, this new beginning. And 
he sort of implies this, I would say, or at least this is in the background of his, his, what he's writing. This brings to bear, as John was saying, old debates, older traditions to draw from. I mean, it's no secret that the founding fathers were deeply steeped in Roman history and jurisprudence and really trying to reckon what they were doing in that lens, especially Jefferson and also Adams. Before the Constitutional Convention, John Adams was like, all right, so I'm just going to go back to my house and I'm going to reread the history of every republic that's ever existed and try to identify their merits and deficits and then write the Constitution that will avoid all the bad things. Which is like such an enlightenment perspective on what you could do with history and the problem of yeah. politics. It's amazing. <laughs> like yeah. you have to respect it. Like it's so funny <laughs> and cool. You know, it's so ambitious too. So a thing that's really important here, I want to say before we get into Jefferson is we talked about folkways. We've talked about it through the Roman perspective. We've talked about it through the English perspective. There is going to be an American version of this. And I think we're, all of us who live in America know of it. It's the folksy guy, the everyman who knows more than the egghead from the city, right? More than the city slicker, more than the highly educated person. You know, I mean, this just shows up so many times. It's like this big cultural meme over and over again. And I will say that it ends up having a huge impact on American thought and letters that perhaps most explicitly expressed in Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, where the constituents of a democracy are leaves of grass and the large field of the land of that democracy, right? It's almost like this pantheism of democratic nationhood that he's setting up there. That's obviously farther down the road than Jefferson, but that's sort of a sketch of where we might be going here. What is interesting about Jefferson is he has these old school Roman suspicions of trade, of commerce as a potentially corrupting influence. He does not have, as Marx lays out, the martial values around the pastoral. In fact, it is the opposite. What he is worried about is that America will become a warlike nation state uh, wherein the government grows bigger and bigger and has greater power over its constituencies, uh, over its constituents. And that the yeoman farmer, through his own property and his own labor, and we have to remember that like these guys are doing labor theory of value here. Right. They're doing John Locke. You know, if your labor or labor you hire out changes, improves nature, that is your property. And that is how it is imbued with value, more or less. I'm being reductive here, but that's the general premise. That is what is going on. Jefferson sees this as a bulwark against tyranny. And this comes up in his, what is it called? Notes on the Colony of Virginia, which uh, is a lesson. Of the state of Virginia. The state of Virginia. Or like yeah, lowercase s, like yes. the condition. Yeah, the condition of it, which is happening. He, he writes in 1790, I want to say. And he's really just responding to a bunch of technical questions from, I believe, a French inquirer. Mm-hmm. And what Marx notices in Jefferson's work is that while he's laying out what is basically dry, almost sociological data, you know, or geographic data, like this is the shape of Virginia, these are its general climates and 
its very various regions. This is its population, its major like agricultural inputs and outputs or whatever. He goes on this almost flight of fancy where he argues for the agrarian over everything else, that it constitutes the right kind of person to inherit a republic, which is, again, a very surprising shift in light of how dry, and we would say, you know, sort of capital E enlightenment feeling in terms of just sheer rationality, the rest of the text is. Yeah, I think that was like the, for me, the coolest part was Marx kind of identifies that Jefferson has a couple modes of thinking and writing. Mm -hmm. And one mode is a very dispassionate social scientist. He kind of identifies it with like Adam Smith. There is just a person who's looking at realities and is dealing with them. But there is also a more Virgilian side where he has certain beliefs about what is best and mm -hmm. kind of almost like a golden idea of what a good society would be that he would love to be able to live within. And these two things will never be pulled together into a coherent whole. And that's just kind of like what it is to be Thomas Jefferson as he because he, he pulls from a lot of different parts of his writing and he says, people have always wanted to say, how can we make sense of the seemingly contradictory nature of things Jefferson says? And I think that the genius here of Mark's view of him is that we just don't and that Jefferson lived with this tension as sort of like the engine of his life, which I think yeah. is perhaps the best way to look at it. But yeah, like you said, I thought it was, so Jefferson's view of like international relations, we'll say, in the beginning, it's really interesting because you can still look at America as something that can be outside of this, nat like the world of European conflicts. You can almost look at them as like sort of parochial to Europe at that time mm. and live with the hope that you can simply remain uninvolved um, despite, you know, like we're post- I think that even at that time, this is untrue. I mean, yeah, like what, like 1812 rolls in like almost immediately. Like, yeah, but right, there are all sorts of territorial time. disputes in the Canada situation at this moment, you know. To believe that it would be possible. And the most instructive line for me was when he said that he wanted America to be like unto Europe as China, which at the time mm. of China was basically at its last zenith in terms of imperial china like we were still a good 30 or 40 years out from the first opium war its territorial sovereignty was basically still completely intact more or less so like so, you know it was the perfect like it is self-sufficient it kind of has no need to consider the world outside of itself and it can mm. simply let the conflicts outside of its shores pass by. It's a largely agricultural society. Like nearly, you know, all of its efforts are agricultural and, and some mercantile. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting that Jefferson put it like that because it gave me kind of a different vision of how he was seeing America at that time and what it could be. You know, things would change for both America and China in the intervening years. 
in different ways. But so he, for him, if you engage in a, in a mercantile effort or a trade, if you in any way have a customer, you are in some way the dependent of that customer. If they don't purchase from you, what are you going to do more or less? And that kind of dependence in Jefferson's mind breeds a lot of contemptible features of personality and eventually ambition because you you have to vie. And in vying, you might become less than a man, I think, for Jefferson. And in so vying, you might also be led to want more than is your proper station, which is self-sufficiency and peace for Jefferson. Mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. And I think he sees in all of this the breeding ground for every contemptible feature of mankind. And he even, he says, corruption of morals in the mass of cultivators is a phenomenon which no age nor nation has furnished an example. Uh, for him, you know, if you are, I think in this scenario, like somewhat above subsistence farmer, but not too far above subsistence, mm-hmm. you, you pull your sustenance from ground you sell a little surplus but it's not like you're depending on that for your livelihood you are somebody who like survives by their own efforts and thus depends on no other man and thus does not breed any of these contemptible forms of sociality i would i would say and and you can't be swayed like that's another thing you can't be deceived in a certain way because wants are self-contained Right. So you can see where in Jefferson's ideas about this, if it becomes a commercial republic, which it eventually does, and he admits that it kind of has to, yeah. you know, that what he prefers isn't on the table. You know, he's less, he might have this sort of romantic Roman element to him, but he's not stupid. Far from it. What happens he worries when people get involved in commerce well first of all commerce extends beyond the nation as well that's an important thing and because it puts you in a vulnerable state and makes you a dependent and turns you into like almost like sub-rational in some ways or at least vulnerable to that that you can be persuaded into things like war like or or faction right? That these are sort of corollary consequences to that, that being self-sufficient would guard against. Yeah, it goes hand in hand with the militia ideal that every free farmer would also be the person responsible for war, like very personally as a soldier. Mm -hmm. And thus, a republic so constituted would be very unlikely to engage in unnecessary violence. I think at least in Jefferson's thinking. Yeah, you wouldn't have commercial enticement, which has a deleterious impact on moral character. You wouldn't have tyranny and you wouldn't have military aggression. Right. These are foremost in his mind. And at this time of writing, the situation, at least as it's constituted and explained here, is that Americans were by and large engaged in farming and then whether it be cotton or tobacco or whatever, sending a lot of it overseas to Europe and getting in exchange like luxury goods or just crafted goods of any kind, things that relied on the budding manufacturers of that time. And that 
Jefferson thought this state of affairs could just obtain perhaps not forever. He even says that it like it can't go on forever, but it could go on for a very long time. That mm-hmm. we need not involve ourselves in setting up and developing American manufacturers. And we can remain almost purely agricultural and simply trade for what we need and let the manufacturers remain in Europe and fester there and not be our problem. Mm-hmm. But as we said, the War of 1812 and other conflicts are on their way. Uh, and it changes it also, you know, the problem is, is that there's a really stiff trade-off here. If Jefferson wants that, then it will leave the United States in resource dependence colony state. And ironically, make it yet more vulnerable to the fights and factions in Europe. Whereas having some sort of manufacturing... And I have to think that this is why... Go ahead. Oh, just, yeah, I was going to, yeah, I have to think that that's why he is not, like his principle is not, while he has his preferences, he's not like a doctrinaire agrarian. No. And I think the fact that when he is in office as a statesman, as it was said later in this chapter, it seems like every time he got into office, he directly worked against everything he believed in. (laughs) I think the reason that that is true is because that, he was more committed to the independence and health of America, however it be set up, than to his personal preference for constitution. And he also seems to have a genuinely democratic sense of the fact that he says, well, he prefers, and Mark says we should think of it more as pastoral than agrarian because of this, Mm -hmm. because of how we have set up the pastoral tradition to include a sense of virtue and a certain kind of living and not merely a mode of production which Mm -hmm. i think is is a pretty a better way to put it yeah he while he is pastoral in his leanings to an extreme he understands at the time of writing his notes already most americans have an appetite for commerce and for making stuff they want to get rich and they want more money and they want to accumulate And that's just simply not going to be possible with the Jeffersonian lifestyle. And he's already well aware that like his views do not obtain among the generality. Mm -hmm. And I think he kind of is, he does not feel as though it would be proper to even make an attempt to impose his views, which I think is really like his more genuine principle of operation throughout his career. Well, it's what separates him from his presidency from Henry Adams's. Yeah. Which was like a total disaster. You know, really rough stuff. And sort of laid bare all of Henry Adams's tyrannical instincts. So where does this leave us with the pastoral, you might be asking? And I think that's a fair question. John just intimated to that, where he talked about how there's a specific mode of being here that's being sought for. Remember, this is about reconciling art and nature and how is this going to happen? Now, Jefferson comes in here, not just because he fits on the timeline in terms of how Marx is working through the ideas of the garden in America, but also because now we see manufacturing on the horizon 
as something incredibly important and a very powerful force that is going to be changing the American landscape, both psychically and intellectually and physically, and how we're going to respond to that. And Jefferson almost creates something like a pastoral ideology that I feel like we see come up many, many times in American history. So we're going to see something like this when it comes to, say, the Jacksonian era. And we're going to see something like this when we come to the Civil War era and the virtues of the early Republican Party as a bunch of yeoman Midwestern farmers who are dead set on making war against the slave South. And we're going to see it again, I would argue, in some of the responses, both left and right, to the post-war buildup of industrial conglomerates. And we'll see that both in people like Barry Goldwater, and we will see it in people like Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog. And that is an important thing to sort of keep your finger on the pulse for, because I think he's identifying real trends here in American ideology. And he's not the only one that identifies things like this. Michael Lind in Land of Promise sort of sees American history as a pendulum between Hamilton and Jefferson in terms of centralization and decentralization. And Marx is doing something, this is no smoke to Michael Lind, who's much of whose work I very much like, but he's doing something, frankly, a little bit more like sophisticated here than, than that, because he's trying to sew together several different elements of American arts and letters here. I'm sophisticated. I'm not even comfortable saying that. He's doing something different, I'll say. Because I'll again, say that I prefer his typology to much of what I see going on today. Same. I think far less received and like conventional, but without like investigation into whether or not it's even merited. Like when he says we need to redefine Jefferson as pastoral rather than agrarian, I'm like 100%. And the, the reasons he gives for it like make complete sense. Like, and, and the way, way more he helpful. identifies an American pastoral literary tradition, extending all the way back into like the Anglosphere world of letters and how that informs a lot of Jefferson's thought on the moral qualities of the rural farmer versus an urbanite. Like, all of this stuff, I'm like, it's so compelling. But I mean, like, and it just feels so much better than saying, like, and I'm not, I've never read Lynn, so this is not directed toward Lynn, but more towards the general, like, pop sense of American mm -hmm. pol political history of, like, Jefferson is for decentralization and this guy's for, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel very instructive to think about things only in those terms is what I'm trying to say. And this is just sort of, like, I'm really happy with a lot of what I'm seeing in this book. No, me too. I, it feels very refreshing. I also want to bring up what he brings up as his pastoral schema, because I think it's, I found it to be one of the most clarifying things when looking at the American relationship with the frontier. You know, like I've read plenty of things about sort of the murderous psychology of manifest destiny, which are important elements to that. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, perhaps one of the best like exposures to how insane that is, is Court McCarthy's Blood Meridian. But 
this schema, I think, helps you understand almost what I would say, like more positive elements of it, or at least like elements of it that you you could understand as being important for anyone living at the time and how they might just sort of have it in their back pocket, the way people seem to have Newtonian physics in their back pocket now, in a way. And so it sort of operates on this spectrum, right? So you have the frontiersman on one side, and Leo Marx pulls a lot of this from his reading before Jefferson of, how do you pronounce that guy's last name, John? Crevacour? Something like Sir, maybe. I was puzzling over that myself. It's been a long time since French class. Yeah, exactly. Who does have an impact on Jefferson. I think Marx demonstrates that. But it it sort of goes like this. On the one hand, you have the frontiersmen, which could be either Native Americans or sort of like fur traders and trappers that are living out there with them. And they're seen as savage in the wilderness and undercivilized. And then at the far spectrum, you have Europeans who are bonded, in other words, in bondage, urban and over-civilized. And in the middle, you would have, and again, this is the pastoral schema from Crevacour, right? So there's a little bit of a propagandistic element to it that Marx gets into as well. Americans are in the middle space, right? So the preferred space of free, pastoral, and basically like straddling one foot in wildness, one foot in urbanity, right? So almost mm-hmm. like suburban <laughs> in a way yeah. in their rural <laughs> existence. And that that is, I think, going to be the schema that collides into the oncoming of the machine or rather than the machine collides into it. And that's where I think we're going here. So we've just done like a long excursion into the American pastoral and its ideological and aesthetic forebears, how it came to be, how Jefferson formulated it. I know that I have listeners in Europe who I am sure have been exposed to our cult of the founding fathers and probably far too much American culture, but it is sort of impossible to undersell how deep that cult runs in America, frankly. You know, like if Jefferson thought something, and believed it and articulated it like very sincerely over and over again, you can bet that it has had a a redounding influence on American everyday life. It does go some ways. I think that's what made, made it very hard for me to spend a lot of time with anything that they wrote because I was constantly subjected to like extremely trite formulations of it as seen in like contemporary debate and it had like a a toll on me i will say like i got sick of it because it didn't seem very serious or meaningful it was very much like setting up various forms of like shitty partisanry based on like you know whether or not you like the founding fathers or like which side of them you like but it didn't have a lot of intellectual like substance you know, it's the kind of stuff that sells like, you know, Glenn Beck books and stuff like that. No one's even heard of him in a while, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, no, that was no, the exactly setting so. in which I grew up and it really poisoned the well. And so that's part of why I found reading this section on Jefferson extremely like salutary, I guess I would say. It was like, oh, like I could, you know, like if I can enjoy this again, <laughs> like thinking about Thomas Jefferson for a while, I just stopped doing that. Yeah, I couldn't bear it anymore. (laughs) 
No, I completely agree. I mean, I grew up very distanced from all of that stuff, probably because I grew up in a more liberal milieu, frankly. But one of the things that's fascinating mm -hmm. is reading the stuff and realizing how much of it still, at least in, even in culture war stuff, colors how we talk about it in America. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it is wild. So that's all to say, like credit to Leo Marx for identifying this. I'm going to be very, very excited to get into the chapter of the machine, which is way longer than the chapter on the garden. And I'm glad about that because one of the things that I see as a problem, both in philosophy generally, and perhaps in specifically to America, which is very, uh, technologically, even today, optimistic commercial republic is that technology, the machine, is under-theorized. Mm -hmm. We have critiques, which are fine, and I think that's important. Not all those critiques are good, but that's life. But we don't have a serious... I would say, thinking about the role of technology in our lives that is still happening at the margins. This is something that the philosopher of technology, who is American, Langdon Winter, points out, even though I don't agree with him on a great many things, is that he's like, how is this still a nascent field of philosophy? He's like, that's crazy. Technology is such a huge force in our lives. How is it that we don't even necessarily have the fundamental problems of this field of study ironed out yet? So I'm excited to see what Leo Marx has to say, and I hope that it will be useful to us and helpful for the listeners. Yeah, definitely. We're just looking here, and I think that maybe it would be nice to close out with the closing line of this chapter. Yeah, go for it. Looking to America's future, Jefferson anticipates the tragic ambivalence that is the hallmark of our most resonant pastoral fables. Our enemy, he writes during the War of 1812, has indeed the consolation of Satan on removing our first parents from paradise. From a peaceable and agricultural nation, he makes us a military and manufacturing one. And there it is, which is sort of the perfect ending here. I mean, yeah, I think I've already been reading some 19th century like later, deeper into the century than the early American writings, literature on technology. So I've been reading some of uh, Emerson and a little bit of Thoreau. And of course, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big Twain fan and he comes up and will come up in this. I need to spend more time with Melville, but I think there is so much to gain from a closer reading of what these, these people were looking at. I mean, it is striking to me. I found out that a guy even wrote a book on this premise how much the telegraph's arrival mirrors the arrival of social media in terms of response in America. Because it arrives and the Civil War breaks out. And there's one guy who describes it as the great iron nerve that connects the country together and through which it feels the shocks, horrors, and pains of the Civil War which rivets the country into deeper and deeper faction as it rolls on. There is a great fear about information and how people can game the market. And is this a homogenizing force? You know, is it stealing folk ways? 
how is this bringing us into a new and perhaps false intimacy now that is connecting so much of the country and so many disparate regions together? It was our first interaction with, it's almost like a prelude to what electricity is going to do to America. That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to yeah, so we'll dig your in insights here. on that. I think one other thing before we close out that was it'll be interesting to follow the because we have here the genesis of the idea of the farmer who nonetheless is able to outwit the the scholar from the university, you know, that as like an archetype. And I was like, you know, that that's crazy, but that's like goodwill hunting, you know, is like the direct descendant of this still alive it's an easy to identify part of american culture and in a way you're like the french could never have made good quality you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah but i yeah i think what's going to be fascinating about that is while it has this maybe like american genesis in a very agricultural world where domains of expertise are maybe not as multiplied once we get into the machine and later on, the world becomes very different. But I think that is retained like as an aspect of our culture, even within that. Like, why is Will Hunting, you know, he's a janitor, but he can also do like very complicated. And it's kind of because he's a genius, but he's also a genius because he spent his whole life outside of fighting people, reading books, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of like self-made working man who is no less intellectually capable than somebody who supposedly, you know, had all the resources given to them to do nothing but think. I think it'll be, because again, like, I think it'll make our interaction with new technologies very different than a European example, for instance. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, just, I've been reading Life on the Mississippi and that seems clear. I mean, especially, yeah, I mean, there's some direct engagements with Europe and that that are really important. And a lot of people see it as Mark Twain introducing America to Europe in a very vibrant and powerful way. I also want to say that, you know, the everyman, which endures and is related to this farmer concept, is a necessary ideological element of American democracy. Like it is a myth that has to be an operation in order for us to feel like we can pull off this society. Yeah. I just think that's true. Like you have to believe that the everyday person is capable of a certain level of reason and a certain level of practicality to run their own lives with minimal interference and perhaps better than somebody who has been brought up in august institutions that have more contoured and patterned their lives. Like people should just go out and rewatch Satan Private Ryan in this light. And the most important thing that you see is you see demonstrations of the democratic impulse when Tom Hanks's captain character asks the men for their opinions on why they think they're doing this mission. And then at the moment where it seems like the men under his command are about to fragment over a mistake he makes, he finally tells them what he does for a living. And it turns out that he is an English teacher from the Midwest who coaches baseball. And it is that he is this everyman that allows him to be a great commander. 
they are not seen like that's not seen as like this paradox. It's seen as directly tied together. And you may say that is sentimental propaganda and also Steven Spielberg. And I would say yes. However, it is indicative <laughs> of a self-image, earned or not, that is incredibly important to America, I would say, across ideological lines. I just think it's very, very important and will probably become important to the oncoming of the machine, which, of course, means an oncoming of expertise. And that is mm -hmm. going to be its own thing. So this is already long. We're going to cut it here, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next time for this. Remember to stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant, and we will see you next time.